Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 7th, we're studying Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 23. The feast of unleavened bread has come. The Passover lamb must be sacrificed. Jesus begins his fulfillment of these Old Testament shadows by giving his disciples his own most sacred meal. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. Pastor Ulmer, as we get started today, let's talk a little context. We're beginning Luke chapter 22 today. What do we need to know about what's been happening in Jesus' life and ministry leading up to this text today? Well, yeah. So for the last couple chapters, uh, we've been, uh, for for all intents and purposes, we've been in the end. Uh, you, of course, get the triumphal entry of the great Palm Sunday narrative happening in Luke 19, and that kind of is the part of the gospel, the text that begins Holy Week. So chapters 19, 20, 21 are all Jesus uh, teaching in Jerusalem. Uh, we got parables. We have all sorts of stuff in those in those chapters. And then in, in chapter 22, you kind of get this, this very big marker um, – now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. So we're starting Holy Week, and now the text is pulling us into a very, very specific time frame that we know about in history. And it kind of gets us ready for uh, two more uh, time references in this text that really show um, how the plan of God and his kingdom is uh, coming to full fruition. So we got a pretty big moment in the text today. You mentioned the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's called the Passover. Yeah. That's mentioned there in that first verse. So we're on what we would often call Monday Thursday or Holy Thursday, celebrating as Christians. But you mentioned this is an important event in history. So thinking back in the context then, not just to the context of Luke, but the Old Testament context of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover— and I'm sure we'll talk more about this as we go, but at least give us an introduction. What do we need to be thinking about when we hear Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover? Yeah, so this is, would, I don't know, uh, Pastor Apple, would you would you agree in saying the, the Passover and the Exodus is probably at least tied for the most important thing that happens in the Old Testament? You kind of have the entire Exodus story, and you have the entire exile into Babylon kind of being the the major, major revolving points. Yes, I, I would say and, that the—I would agree with you. The Exodus is—I've sometimes called it the premier salvation event of the Old Testament. Yeah. Sometimes it gets eclipsed by the return from exile. That's the way the prophets will talk about the return from exile, that the Exodus is always the marker. That's what you always compare it to. And so we're, we're in that story. Keep going. Yeah. So, I mean— 
so with that understood that we're we're dealing with probably the most important thing that happens in the Old Testament, this first verse in Luke 22 ties uh, the Christian reader back to the Exodus, because it's in Exodus uh, 12, where after the first nine plagues have happened in Egypt, God promises a tenth plague. Of course, this is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And this plague, I think, as you and I talked about many, many years ago on this program now, when, when we're in Exodus, that a lot of these plagues, uh, the first couple plagues only only affected kind of the Egyptians, and then you had these big plagues that affected everybody, or I had that backwards. But the tenth, the tenth plague was going to affect everybody who did not believe God's word, and in in the lead up to the tenth plague, the the death of the firstborn, God told the people through Moses that they were supposed to do a couple very specific things. They were supposed to get a lamb. Uh, they were supposed to get a a young. Uh, lamb of a sheep or a goat that was male, one years old, spotless and blemishless. They were supposed to take into their homes. And then on a specific day, they were supposed to uh, slaughter this lamb uh, at twilight, and they were to take the blood of this lamb, paint it on their door, and then cook this lamb whole with its innards uh, and, and eat a meal and then after that, they were explicitly told from that time on, they were to hold that peace to remember, they were hold, to hold that feast to remember the salvation that God did for his people in Egypt that day. So when Luke tells us the timing of what is going on here, he, he's kind of drawing us back to the Exodus and all of the elements that go with it. For instance, when Jesus shows up on the scene, what is it that John the Baptist calls Jesus? Mm -hmm. The Lamb of and God. The answer is, yeah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in the Exodus, uh, what were they supposed to slaughter? A lamb. So you, you have this moment in history where... where the events that are going to take place on Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday in the Passion of Jesus almost kind of perfectly mirror the events of the Passover because Jesus' Passion is the fulfillment of the salvation that happened in the Exodus hundreds of years previous. Yeah, you really have to know the Exodus account to make sense of Jesus' passion. And Luke really highlights that. He mentions it more than once here. And as you said, there's going to be some time markers that go from general to specific that really narrow in on what Jesus is doing very particularly. And so just as the Exodus became that premier salvation event of the Old Testament, now Jesus is going to eclipse that, and he's going to bring about not just the salvation of Israel from slavery to Egypt, but He's going to bring about the salvation of the world from slavery to sin. It's, I mean, it's such, a, it's such a huge thing. And then particularly what we're going to see today 
is the comparisons between the meal that was used to celebrate the Passover and the new meal by which Jesus fulfills that. Any final comments before we jump into the text? Uh, I'd just say you're absolutely right, and that's that, That's pretty much what's going on here. I mean, we, we have to understand... It, not, not to say that these things are equivalent, but all of this stuff is happening kind of in that same context to show what God has been doing the entire history of salvation, and that when it time came to set his people free from slavery and to sin, it is just fitting. It's almost like Monday, Thursday, on the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it almost kind of had to be that day. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And, and you, you might even think about it the other way around, that because of what was going to happen on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, the Passover had to be the way that it was. You know, so maybe think about it. I, I think that's a fair way of putting it, too. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you can approach it from either direction. It's kind of one of those moments in history that it, it just kind of had to be that way. Yeah. And, and we see it play out in its, in its completion in this narrative. Yes, yeah. You, you see how it is the same God working in the Old Testament and the New Testament, accomplishing the salvation of his people all along, and now he's bringing it to fulfillment here, beginning in Luke 22. So let's turn to the text. We're in Luke 22, beginning at verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. We'll stop there. That was through verse 13 of the text. Pastor Elmer, we talked about that first verse. We are in the context of the Exodus account, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover. Just, I mean, briefly on those names, I suppose it's it's worth a mention. Unleavened Bread was used because something was going to happen quick. Passover refers to the angel of death actually passing over those houses that were marked. So those are the, the two names that are given. They seem to be used interchangeably. Is that, is that the way you read it? I, I do I do read it in that way. You kind of have this this whole as far as I understand kind of the the way a Jewish person would have celebrated this this festival of Passover would have been long longer than the meal specifically. So you you kind of have this event which is the Passover and then you have this specific of this very specific meal of unleavened bread that everybody was supposed to hold. Right. And and that's where, I mean, Luke is narrowing it. You start there in verse one, the feast is here. 
Then verse seven, you have the, a particular day when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. I mean, that that <laughs> that Passover lamb having to be sacrificed, I think that really draws that connection, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. to the way John the Baptist identified Jesus as the lamb of God. There's a big, big hint as to how we are to interpret the events we're about to see. Yeah, absolutely, because John, it's, I don't think it's any, it's no chance at all that John wasn't kind of pointing towards this, because one of the big elements of the Passover was this killing of the lamb, and it's very explicit in this text that it was necessary for this sacrifice to happen, and kind of what happens within 24 hours of this moment, uh, that lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is uh, slain upon the cross. Mm. And the fact that it is necessary that these things happen really ties us back to the language we've heard Jesus use in his passion predictions in the Gospel of Luke. Over and over again, he said how it's necessary that the Son of Man have these things happen to him, that it must be this way. That repeat of that language is important to make those connections. And I think it's it's a helpful way for us to to view this text and the rest of the passion narrative going forward so that we know who's in charge. I think that's one of the themes that comes yeah. through really clearly in this text particularly, is that what's happening isn't an accident, but this is God's will at work. Yeah, I think you you see that here in this this first major section, uh, the, this discourse between Judas and the ones to whom he is betraying Jesus, and you see this kind of, with with Satan entering into the scene, tying back, kind of tying back to to Luke 4 before in the temptation of Jesus. You you have Jesus being tempted in Luke 4, and then when Jesus kind of defeats Satan with the Word of God, Satan departs until kind of the right time comes. Well, when when is that right time? Well, it's this meal. It's Passover time. So you, you get that element of everything is kind of playing out exactly how it's supposed to. I think you also get that in this next section, which I'm sure we'll talk about more at, at length, where the time of preparation needs to be made. And al- almost out of thin air, Jesus tells his disciples what to do in order to, to make preparations in a, in a city that they don't live in, and, and what happens when they do what he says it's kind of all prepared as he says it is. It, it kind of has to be this way. You also get it at the end of the text, uh, after the, the Lord's Supper, when Jesus uh, kind of declares to his disciples that his betrayer is amongst them. Mm-hmm. And, and what does Jesus say to them? He, he basically says, the Son of Man goes according to the determined path. It kind of has to happen this way. So you, you kind of get this Jesus knows what is going on the whole time. He and his Father are in control of what's going on, and everything is playing out how it was supposed to and how it needs to be. I think that's a very important context to keep in mind. Again, not only for our text today, but as the Passion narrative continues in Luke 22 and 23. And I think it it particularly is helpful as we read what does happen as the enemies of Jesus start to make their plans. And it really strikes me in Luke's gospel, particularly how you have the, I mean, if you can categorize Jesus enemies, he's faced two in his ministry. He's faced Satan and his demons, and he's faced the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And now those two groups, they come together 
They find an ally that each of them can use, Judas. And I mean, you've got all this, if I can think about it this way, the gathering darkness is is coming. And if you don't have that context of the will of God working itself out, he's leading these events so that the salvation of the world is accomplished. You know, verses, what, three through six can seem kind of kind of frightening. But in the right yeah. con, I mean, in that context, we see that even even the enemies of the Lord, he is using them for the sake of accomplishing salvation for sinners. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't think that would be too unlike God, because if you look over the history of Israel, as I know that we have spoken in the past, when, when it comes time for, for judgment, God always uh, uses uh, the the people's enemies to bring about judgment, and then he also brings about his salvation in the, in the manners that he sees fit to. So in the entire history of God's people, if you can kind of take a step back, um, he's always kind of been, well, not kind of been in control, He has always been in control, even when it's hard to see. Mm. And that, in, in one way, that can bring frustration to the Christian. In another way, when you finally fear, love, and trust in him above all things, you understand that he he does have a plan, he knows where this is going, and that he will take care of his people. Talk a little bit more about the role of Satan here. I, I mean, you know, I, we know Judas, he agrees for the money, you, know, you see the tragedy of that, but, but the role that Satan plays, why is that a significant part of this text? Yeah, as I mentioned before, you you have the you have the temptation of Jesus in Luke four, and and Jesus fights back Satan and, and his forces with the with the word of God, as the the proper human, the proper Israelite should. And Satan departs until an opportune time. Well, the opportune time is here. Uh, Satan sees an opportunity to do his worst, and um, he, at least in this Lucan text, takes a very active role because Satan enters into Judas, and like in a very real way, this this story becomes less about Judas and the chief priests and the scribes and even the the commanders of the military who will be used to kind of arrest and prosecute Jesus. But you have Satan here showing up, showing what this entire story really is, which is a part of that spiritual battle between uh, Satan and God and his son. Hmm. And I think that comes out very clear and direct in this text. Yeah, you, you brought up Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, a couple of times. And it, it's striking in Luke's gospel particularly how right before that, Luke takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Jesus being the son of Adam, the son of God. And if you think about Jesus' temptation in that light of what happened to Adam in the garden and the promise that was made in the garden, there in Genesis 3, you have that promise made that the offspring would come and crush the serpent's head while the serpent strikes that offspring on the heel. And I mean, it's just, I I think it's, it's wonderful to see how Luke ties these things together for us by making sure we understand that Satan is involved in this, that this isn't just a battle between Jesus and his human enemies, but this is a battle between God and Satan. And again, with that context in mind, we know who's going to win. We do. We do. So at this point, go ahead. at this point, it's probably not clear 
uh, of course, we know we know the end of the story, but if you're just kind of reading the story from beginning to end, it's not clear who's going to win here. Um, but we at least have the idea of we know who the main characters are, God and Satan, and and we know everything is going according to uh, Jesus's plan at this point. Right, and and it, when kinda, you kind of where we're at when you tie that in with the Passover context, you know that that this is all happening as a part of the yearly celebration for God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt, you've got some pretty good markers there as to know how this is going to play out. And and then, I mean, you tie in the preaching of John the Baptist, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. You, I mean, all of this equips you to recognize that what happens to Jesus as a part of his passion isn't his defeat, but it's actually his his victory which the disciples won't get <laughs> not as not nope. as it's going on but looking back on it later it's it's super important to see that well it is super important and with without getting too far in our discussion when is it that they finally kind of understand that all of this was to be Jesus's victory well it's when he uh, breaks bread with them on the road after the resurrection yeah it's kind of it's kind of amazing how this breaking of bread ends up becoming a a huge moment uh for this story for the realization that Jesus really was who he says he was that he really did win that day and also for the church going forward from that moment. Mm, that's right. Yeah, the meal takes center stage in our text particularly. So let, let's talk more about the the next section. And again, Luke n- narrows things down for us a little bit here in verse 7 when he says, then came the day of unleavened bread. This is the day on which the Passover lamb has to be sacrificed. And then Jesus sends Peter and John to make these preparations. So Take us, take us into this scene. We've seen something very similar to it on Palm Sunday. Jesus mm-hmm. does the same thing. He repeats it again. What, what are some of the significant details we see here in this part of Luke 22? Yeah, so I think understanding in this context who Jesus and his disciples were, understanding that these are very, very faithful Jewish people is very, very important. Because, as Luke tells us, the day that we're speaking about is the day in which they are obligated to celebrate the Passover meal. So as good Jews, what are they obligated to do? They're obligated to celebrate the Passover meal. So they they better have some place to do this. I mean, you're talking about, what, 13 people? And you need the space to do this. And not only do you need the space to do this, I mean, this meal has some very specific uh, characteristic foods and rituals that need to be done. So all of that stuff needs to be obtained. And it, it might kind of fall, fall deftly upon us who live in kind of 21st century America, where if you want to have a feast, you just, well, go to, to HEB or Safeway or whatever your favorite grocery store is and and pick up a, a lamb and some ingredients to make unleavened bread and a whole bunch of wine and some bitter herbs and stuff. I mean, kind of back in Jesus' day, this stuff took a, quite a bit of effort to put together. And they're talking about doing it that day. Hmm. And I think any reasonable disciple would be like, okay, Lord, um, you know we have to prepare prepare and do the, the Seder meal today. Uh, what's your plan for doing this? Hmm. And and Jesus just lays it out, God, guys. 
go. I want you to prepare the, the place. And if you're worried about uh, where, where you might prepare it and where we're going to get the stuff from, just go into town, do this thing, uh, find this guy carrying this water jar, tell him, tell him the master, where's gonna, the master going to prepare this meal, follow him. It's all going to be laid out for you. Bing, bang, boom, done. And what happens? They do exactly what Jesus says. What do they find? They find a large room prepared, a place where they have a table, a place where they can recline, recline and have all the, the fixings that they need to do this meal. Mm-hmm. These are not small details that Jesus gives. Well, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I should say that they are small details that Jesus gives. They, they, I mean, he gets down to which, which man you're going to follow, what he's carrying, which room you're going to enter. They, they are small details. Jesus doesn't, you know, he, he's not he's not sort of speaking in generalities so that no. it, you know, it could have been anything or anyone they would have, and they just kind of happened to, upon it. This is actually his word at work doing what his word has done all along. And I, you know, it's, I don't know what, do you think you could classify this as a, a miracle of sorts? I mean, it seems like a minor one, but I think it kind of is a, a bit of a I miracle. Mean, I, I would, I personally would classify this as a miracle be, because from from what I understand, preparing this meal was was no simple undertaking. And and like I said before, none of these guys lived in Jerusalem, so I'm not not sure kind of what relationships would have had to been leveraged to to pull this off. But this is a big undertaking, and according to the text, it just kind of happens as Jesus says it. Jesus has got this all under control. I absolutely think this is a miracle. Well, I think that's the key, is that it happens just as Jesus says it, that, again, as he enters into his passion, the Lord gives to his disciples confidence in his word, which, you know, if they've been paying attention, they should have that. They've seen Jesus' word at work throughout his ministry. But again, at this pivotal moment, on this pivotal day, they need that reminder yet again. And again, I think that's important for us as we read through the passion of our Lord, that we recognize that throughout it all, it is the word of the Lord at work to do what he says. And so every time we hear him say something, we know it can be trusted. And here's just that small bit of sight that he gives so that we know his word can be trusted. Well, absolutely, and, and I think that's got to be part of what's going on here, uh, brother, because Jesus could have just as very well said, hey guys, it's time to do the meal, follow me, I got everything taken care of. But he doesn't do it that way. He he sends them uh, to do it, almost in a way of reminding them, and thereby reminding us for whom this account has been written down and given to us in Holy Scripture, that when, when push comes to shove, what we need to do is believe Jesus' words, and he will take care of whatever need we have. Yeah. So he, he's almost—he's he, making them do it for, for their sake and for ours, that we might believe that he is uh, God's chosen one. That's right. And, and that we might believe that whenever he says something, it is true. Because there are going to be some yeah. words coming up in this text that it is very important that we believe that those words, when he speaks them, are true. And we're going to pick that up and more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 22 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 7th. We're studying Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 23 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 1 through 13. Jesus has instructed Peter and John exactly what they need to do to prepare for the Passover. They go, they find it just as he told them. They prepare the Passover And that brings us to the rest of our text. We pick up reading again now in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. For behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. That's the rest of our text for today. That's Luke 22, verses 14 to 23. Pastor Elmer, before we skip by it too quickly, in verse 14, we come to that last time marker. And now it's not just the feast or the day, but it's actually the hour. What's the, I mean, why do we need to pay attention to that, that this is the hour that's come? Yeah, I think this is one of those this is one of those time references that should have all of us really really paying attention because Jesus in saying this knows that his hour the the hour for which he kind of was born, the hour for which he was raised, the hour for which he was lived, it it's coming. So this is Luke's way of telling us and Jesus's way of telling us that he knows that his time, uh, as you said before, kind of that that moment of the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelion, the the crushing of the serpent's head and the striking of the heel, we're talking about that time. Mm -hmm. That time has come. It is so close now that uh, you can taste it. Literally, isn't it quite something that the Literally. hour comes and they're they're eating, which I, I suppose, again, shouldn't surprise us too much when we've been reading Luke's gospel, because he records any number of instances of Jesus eating. And so to see Jesus' hour come, and it starts with his eating with his disciples, he's reclining at table, both teaching and eating with them, that, that really shouldn't surprise us too much. No, I, I think... Like, like we've said multiple times, I think things are exactly how they were supposed to be. I know that might sound lame or repetitive, but I think it's an important part of this text. Everything is how it's supposed to be. 
It couldn't be any other way. So Jesus is reclining at table. His apostles are with him and he speaks to them. And I, I think Luke is the one who gives us these details more than the other evangelists. We, we know this moment as the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we will talk about that when it comes in verse 19 and 20. But before that, Luke gives us a little bit more about what goes on in the conversation in this meal. And, and he gives us some of this information about what Jesus says about he's desired to eat this Passover with his disciples and, and what it means in terms of the kingdom of God. Take us into some of these introductory comments about the meal before we get to the Lord's Supper itself. Yeah, I think number number one in verse 15 you have Jesus directly referencing his suffering. Hmm. So he he understands and he is communicating to his disciples once again the purpose for which he is here. He knows that suffering is on his menu and that it's coming quickly. I think that you can also say um, that he he I I, I don't mean to be cheeky in saying this, but you, you can understand that he, he understands what he is doing in reference to the Passover as well, right? So you, you have his suffering, you have, you have this meal, and you have this teacher, this rabbi who understands his place in it. And, and I think you really get this in verse 16, because... He's telling his disciples that he wants to eat this meal with him, kind of in fulfillment of of the law, but also that he's not going to eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, when is that fulfillment going to happen, namely the fulfillment of the Passover itself? Well, it's going to happen in the next three days, right? Mm. Yes, that's correct. I mean, so, so Jesus... I think here in 15 and 16, he's really laying out a lot of really, really important stuff. Because if I tell you that I surely will not eat, eat it until when it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, well, when does he eat with his disciples again? Mm. Well, he eats with them on the road to Emmaus. If you go into the other gospel accounts, he eats uh, with his the twelve uh, by the seashore when they go back to fishing. He eats with them again. Um. He, he's really cluing us into what's going to happen in the Passion is is the salvation of humanity from their slavery to sin, but it's all within the, the context of this Passover. He is the fulfillment of this thing that started centuries before. And the, the kingdom of God language, I think, is very important, too, yeah. because it, it ties together a lot of things that we've seen not only in, in Jesus' ministry before Holy Week, but since Holy Week has begun, You know, particularly on Palm Sunday, when Jesus was acclaimed as a king, now he's talking about that kingdom coming, and he connects it to his suffering, and then the mm-hmm. eating of this meal that he will do again with them after that kingdom has come. And so, I mean, it really, you know, this language of Jesus here equips us to really to understand what we're praying for when we pray thy kingdom come still today, that the Lord answers that even now when we partake of the supper, even as we long for that day when we'll, you know, be at the marriage feast of the lamb and his kingdom that has no end. Yeah. And I, I think it also, 
at, at least in part, this is one of those now and not yet things where we understand that when when did this inbreaking of the kingdom of God, when did it start? Well, it, it starts when Jesus when Jesus kind of comes out of the grave, right? This this kingdom of God has has begun amongst us and in part we live in it. We don't always see it fully. We don't always see it clearly, but we do believe that he is with us, and we eat and we drink this meal in remembrance of him as part of this uh, kingdom of God that, that exists because he's overcome the grave. Mm. Well, and, and even even in the midst of his suffering, he's bringing the kingdom of God. I, I recall back in chapter 17, where you've got some Pharisees asking Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And he, he says the, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, wherever Jesus is, so there is the kingdom of God with him. He brings it because he is the king. And so, yes, yeah, the, the I mean, kingdom I, of God comes when he rises from the dead, when he ascends. I mean, all of this is a part of his bringing of the kingdom, but it also includes his cross and his his suffering that leads up to it. You know, when the, the sign, and I know we'll talk about this when we get there in Luke 23, but when the <laughs> sign says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, even though Pilate didn't realize it, he was right. Jesus really is the king there on the cross. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think if, if he really wanted to, you could you could extend that all the way back to the the incarnation of the oh, birth yeah. of Christ too. I mean, I, I was talking at a Bible study with uh, other brothers in my circuit this last Thursday about something that's very true. It's when when Jesus shows up as a baby boy, the kingdom of God breaks in in a very specific way, and in that child is always judgment. So I mean, you you can go all the way back there, but I think while while that's true, you. you you happen in a very different way when Jesus suffers and rises. It, I, I don't, I don't know what the the best way of, of phrasing that is right off, right off the, the cuff of my sleeve. But you have it in this way that those who believe have become convinced that this kingdom of God is good news for them. Yeah, I mean, and this the is judgment. The judgment for believers is righteousness, not, not. Uh, destruction or damnation. That's right. I mean, with with this, with the crucifixion and resurrection together, that really opens the the eyes to truly see the kingdom of God for what it is. And you, and you're right. You have to. You mean you have to take. You have to take the the whole ministry of Jesus together because you know Luke Luke in the Annunciation when he recorded it in chapter one, Gabriel is the one who says that that this child you're going to bear, Mary. He's going to reign on the throne of his father, David. His kingdom will have no end. I mean, this kingdom of God language has been surrounding Jesus all along. And and the thing we want to see, particularly from Luke 22, is that his suffering and death are a part of that reigning as king. And, and I think that that then allows us to see the kingdom of God as good news, because the one yeah. who brings the kingdom of God is the one who bears the scars that he won for us. And, and it means then that the kingdom of God, like we don't, we don't get separated from it because of the suffering that we endure. When Jesus calls us to yeah. carry our cross and follow him, that's not a separation from the kingdom of God, but we're actually included into the kingdom of God, even in the midst of that suffering. Yeah, another way of putting it, I think, is it's one thing to know that there is a king. It's another to know that that king is benevolent. 
Sure. Yeah. And, and this is where you do get to see in the, in the passion yeah. of our Lord, you see that this King is good, that he loves you yeah. because he does this for you. He, he wants to, I mean, think about his language here. He is earnestly desired to eat this Passover with his mm-hmm. disciples. He, this is what he wants. I mean, it's, and, and so it is in his supper today, he, he desires to celebrate this supper with us, to be both host and meal as we, as we sing. That's his desire. Yeah, He's a good so- King. Yeah, and I think that before we get into the discussion of the of the meal itself and the institution, I think this plays out very well in 19 and 20 when he says, this is my body which is given for your benefit, and this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is poured out for your benefit. Um, it's kind of explicit there that he is doing this to to benefit his people. Yeah, that's something we we always want to make sure we recognize in the passion of our Lord. It's good that we pay attention to what happened, to the details as the evangelists give them to us, but we always want to make sure that we we understand the for you of this that that Jesus isn't just doing this only so that he fulfills the scripture, but he fulfills the scripture for you. It's it's more than it is historical fact, but it's also historical fact that's for you. And we always want to see that in the passion of our Lord. Yeah, or, or nerding out uh, who here doesn't love their catechism as that's I'm right. preparing my, my catechumens for confirmation here in the next couple weeks. Uh, that question out of the Lord's Supper section of the catechism, who who is it that receives the, the sacrament of the altar worthily? The one who believes the words given and shed for you. It, it's always that God doing this thing for us that kind of seals the deal. Mm. So take us into the institution of the supper as Luke gives it in verses 19 and 20. The words are are familiar to us. We hear them in worship every week when we receive the Lord's Supper. What what do we need to see in these words of institution that Luke records? Yeah, I for without like Going crazy in depth, I mean, what you have here is he, he takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, and then says, uh, very plainly, this is my body, which is given for your benefit to this thing in remembrance of me. He, he gives them this bread, he's instituting kind of a, a new covenant, he, he wants them to eat it, and in their eating, um, in this very specific way, um, to, to remember him. He also takes a cup. Uh, in all of the things I've read in the notes, you will you will note that this is the second cup of wine, at least, that they've been drinking, because he gives them a first one, which they're supposed to share, and then he takes another one after supper, which could have been, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the, the fourth cup in the Seder meal, is that correct? I, I think I've heard that before. So you, you, there's this fourth cup that that was supposed to be drunk after the meal in the Seder, and he takes this one, and he he tells them that this cup is a new covenant in his blood. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, because that's really, really important, um, that he wants them to drink it, and that's poured out for their benefit. Mm-hmm. I, I think here it's one of those moments where, as, as a Lutheran pastor— these words are very, they're very simple, they're b- very beautiful. I, I take them very simply, 
we eat and we drink his body and blood in with and under bread and wine at his instruction because he promises. And, and that's kind of where, where I like to, to leave it off. I, I don't read into it any more than, than believing his words as simply as I possibly can. Hmm. I, I'm looking at the Lutheran Study Bible notes here. They suggest that this is the third cup of the meal third cup that, was, that was used. But the, the point is not necessarily to identify which cup or, or how it necessarily lays into the particular tradition, but to, to pay attention to the way the evangelists record it for us, because the details that they give us are, are what's important. And I mean, the simplicity of Jesus' language here, this is my body, which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's, it's just so simple. And he's already shown his disciples on this very day how they can trust his words, that when he speaks, what he says happens, it's true. And we should understand these words in that same way. It is his body that they, that they receive. It is his blood that they drink, and it is for them, for their forgiveness. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned the catechism, the, the answer that Luther gives to that first question, what is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, for us Christians to eat and drink. I mean, what what a simple yep. answer. It's, it's, it goes precisely with what Jesus says. And and what a joy it is to believe what Jesus says and to receive it. So with, with that in place, let's talk about some of the details. You mentioned the new covenant language being pretty significant. What's the significance of that? Yeah, so the new covenant language here, I think, is really, really big because... Uh, spoiler alert, this brings us back to the Exodus narrative. Imagine that, right? <laughs> so so how, what's the connection between the Exodus and the covenant? So yeah, so after God releases his people from Egypt, they, they walk around for a little while, then he brings them to, to Mount Sinai, where he establishes a covenant with the people, right? This is where God tells them who he is, who they are, he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then there's this moment um, in this narrative where the, a covenant is ratified between God and his people. And wink, wink, nudge, nudge, how is that covenant kind of ratified and solidified? And the answer, my brother, is? Blood. Blood. <laughs> it's blood. Yeah, so there, there's this blood of the sacrifice that Moses collects, and, and sprinkles on the people, kind of ratifying this covenant between God and his people. And what happens when, when Jesus fulfills the Exodus, fulfills the salvation account? How is the covenant then ratified between uh, God and his people? The answer is, it has got to be blood. Mm. And which blood is it? It's Jesus' precious blood poured out for us, it's the blood that we receive uh, by his promise in the sacrament, in, with, and under the wine. This is one of those moments and one of those details that, that might seem small, but it's a very clear connection back to, to the covenant. Uh, understand that in Christ, that covenant is being, I don't know what the word is, re-solidified, re-promised, re believed something. He, he's saying, guys, this is what's going on now. This, this covenant is set, and you, and you receive uh, your your portion in it uh, through my blood. Yeah, I mean... And what a privilege it is to be able to drink it 
uh, together. That's right. And, and he, he seals it to us. He says, here it is. Mm-hmm. It's yours. Believe it. I mean, this covenant yeah. language gets picked up by the prophet Jeremiah. He particularly speaks of a new covenant that the Lord will make. And he, he also attaches it to the forgiveness of sins. I, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more is the promise from Jeremiah 31. And this new covenant language you know, ties us back that it's connecting the exodus to this new exodus that Jesus is accomplishing right now. And he's delivering right now through his upcoming death and resurrection and in this meal that we still receive this, do this in remembrance of me. This is something that the church is intended to continue until that day comes when we celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom that has no end. Amen. Pastor Ulmer, then let's pick up the last bit of Jesus' language in our text today. Now he identifies, in the context of this meal, the one who's going to betray him, or he says someone will betray him, and he says, woe to that man. Tell us about these last words of Jesus and then the ensuing discussion of his disciples. Yeah, so... As we've discussed, at least in part in, in, our, in our chat this morning, these, these last verses really uh, reiterate and confirm to us that Jesus is in control what is go- with what is going on. He is aware of who his disciples are. He is aware of who his betrayer is. Um, he knows exactly how this thing is going to play out, and he lets his disciples, and therefore us, uh, know exactly how it uh, is going to go down and how it's supposed to be. Mm. He even says, the Son of Man goes according to the determined path. Mm. He very clearly and explicitly states, um, this is the path that he is going on. It's the only path that could have happened. Everything that has happened and everything that will happen is going according to God's plan. And I think the call... Uh, to his disciples and to us is then to to believe. Um, it's to believe in it, because everything that he's gone through is uh, for their benefit and for ours. Hmm. Uh, the woe, um, that, that's a very, very harsh and, and difficult uh, word to hear, because even though he understands exactly who it is, even though he understands it's exactly what that plan is, I mean, Judas, Judas does bear responsibility for betraying his Lord, and I think that's always one of those very, very difficult things where God—I I don't know if you want to phrase it—God chooses to who he will use to, to fulfill the plan, or if he, if he understands the wickedness of humanity and, and uses that for his glory, if that's what's going on here— um, well, it, it I think that well I think the woe is meant to remind Judas first, and then us that Judas does remain responsible for what yeah. he is doing. He is not guiltless for his sin, but he does carry that guilt. And I, you know, I even I even wonder if there's just because of who Jesus is, that even within that woe, there's yet a last call for Judas to repent, to recognize the gravity of the sin that he is in the process of committing and is about to make. Yeah final with his kiss that comes later this night, that even then Jesus calls Judas from that to repentance. I, I, I can definitely see that. It, it's one of those questions where without, 
without the ability to see kind of eternity in its fullness in my own very limited human state, to understand that, yeah, I believe that Jesus is calling him to repent here, but whether or not that that, if it would have ever or could have been heeded by Judas, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question. Does that make sense? Sure, and I think that's beside the point. It's not the question that we've been given yeah, to agree. answer. Yeah, that, that we're simply to listen to the Lord's words and understand what his desire and will is in in what he says, at, and just leave it at that and not speculate beyond what's what's there. So, Pastor Elmo, we yeah, got about. And I think go ahead. You, you get into really, really dangerous territory there. That's right. That's right. And and there's really good stuff on this topic in the Lutheran Confessions concerning God's election and foreknowledge. Check out the formula of Concord. That's that's the place Amen. to look. Pastor Elmo, we got about <laughs> two minutes to wrap things up this morning. Give us the good news from this beginning section of the Lord's Passion. Yeah. So. Brothers and sisters who are listening to this program, as um, you've gathered in the study this morning and as we quickly approach, or maybe even in Holy Week, uh, know that Jesus knew what, what he was going to do the entire time, and at the appropriate time, at the right time, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, during the Passover, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, did uh, do everything necessary uh, to buy you back from sin, death, and the devil. He, he prepared his disciples. He prepares us. He has given us his body and blood in, with, and under bread and wine, that when we eat and drink it in remembrance of him, we might participate uh, in that wonderful sacrifice that he made for us, and, and trusting in him and, and grabbing onto him, uh, knowing that the sacrifice has been made complete, we know that we have salvation in his blood. Pastor Matt Ulmer is pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us today with Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 23. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It is always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 22 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send us a message. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.